Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Started Up Podcast. Uh, beyond excited about today's episode, I have on Jimmy Sony. Uh, he just had written the founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. Had to give an announcement before I jump into the episode. Uh, at the end, uh, Jimmy gives a lot of honor and praise to one of the teachers that inspired him. And uh, at the end, we're going to have a giveaway that I was just excited about because he wanted to know who your favorite teacher is. And so he's going to give a, a signed copy to both the person that nominates and that super fantastic teacher in your life. So listen to the episode. We're going to have information about it. But I cannot tell you how much joy and excitement I had um, interviewing a guy who was interviewed some of the most you know big name entrepreneurs in the world but he yet at the same time really came back and, and, and circled it back with the educators in his life. So I know you're going to love this episode. If you could do me a favor, feel free to share this one with a teacher in your life. And yes, if you uh, are on Twitter and LinkedIn, I'll be checking those spaces. Um, make sure that I'm included at Don Wetrick, but tell me who your favorite teacher is. If you can tag them, great. I will randomly uh, assign a number and I'll make that drawing and then Jimmy will uh, basically mail you a signed copy and your favorite teacher book. All right, enough gabbing from me. You're going to love this episode. Without further ado, Jimmy Sony. Welcome back everybody to another edition of the Start Ed Up podcast. I've today been excited for this one for a while. I have on Jimmy Sony who just released his third book, The Founders, The Story of PayPal and the Entrepreneurs Who Shaped Silicon Valley. Jimmy, thank you so much for being on the show. Don, I, I really appreciate it. As a, as, a, as a son in the Midwest, I'm glad to be talking to another Midwesterner. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, so like, before I really get into The Founders, because um, I read it, loved it. Um, thank you for sending me a, a, an advanced copy. Um, but you've already had like this, uh, curiosity of, um, like how things work. Like, talk to me about the first two other books before we get into the founders. Oh, um, taking me back. Um, yeah, you know, it's, so here's, here's what I'll say. So let's, let, let me explain it in terms that I think are going to be most relevant to your audience, right? Because it's something that I found in the research for the founders and it sort of stuck with me, like where I was like, oh, I could see this instinct. I think there's a certain predisposition for some people where if you can't find an answer to something that you want in the world, you have to create it or just like beat down enough doors until you find it, right? Um, one of the people I wrote about in my last book, Claude Shannon, like, sort of, I think at one point he described it as being usefully irritated, right? Uh, like, like you're sort of like productively bothered by something. So for me, the place that applies is books. If I can't find a book I want to read, I will put it on a list that is literally, it's a Google Doc. It's like books, books to write is what it's, what it's called. And the first effort I had that with was a book about an ancient Roman senator whose name was Cato. Most people, if they know ancient Rome, they know the name Caesar. Well, Caesar had an arch nemesis. His name was Cato. And he was kind of unbelievable and kind of like complicated, but an unbelievable figure historically. I went looking for biography, couldn't write one, uh, couldn't find one, then decided along with a friend of mine from college to write it. That sort of solved that problem. It filled the space on the bookshelf. Fast forward. I was looking at and trying to understand Bell Labs, Bell Laboratories, which was this amazing collection of technological talent. And I went looking for a biography of Claude Shannon. And again, I couldn't find one. People had done books about him or about his ideas. There was a great book by James Glick called The Information. 
but no one had done kind of the end to end look like who was this guy? What, what made him tick? So I decided to do that just because I couldn't find it worked out. And that's kind of how, I mean, I, I wish, like, I really, I wish I had like a, a narrative, or like a theory about my, my ideas. It, it really legitimately is. I go searching for books. If I can't find one or I feel like, oh, there's something here that is like needs to go further. I will just keep, you know, beating on doors and, and tossing around ideas until somebody does it. Yeah, I that was interesting. I like by the way, wasn't the in the Pink Panther movie, wasn't the foil also named Cato? I think yeah, Cato and then there's a few other famous historical Catos, but I'm writing about the OG Cato, which is like the ancient Roman Cato. Yes. Uh well, so jump I'm going to jump right in then because yeah. um people that you may not know or people behind the scenes and then cultures of is really what I enjoyed about the founders. Um, I'll tee this up. I mean, obviously the, the, the title, the subtitle gives away the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. Um, already being a fan of some of those uh, notorious or, or famous uh, people that came out of it, obviously, I, I, you know, chief among them, people point to Elon Musk and Peter Thiel. Um, but I like the fact that you started off with Max Sledgkin. Mm. And yeah. and the origins of Max and uh, how he got here. I mean, you could have started that book several different ways in several different areas. Why did you choose chapter one to write about Max? Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that. Uh, there were a few reasons why Max became like a figure of real interest for me. The first is that if you're telling the story honestly and chronologically, in late 1998, a young, fresh out of the University of Illinois engineer named Max Levchin meets this investor, Peter Thiel, who gives him a $100,000 bridge loan to start his company, the company that becomes PayPal. So chronologically, you're kicking around kind of like late 1998 is the place to start. And then you kind of dive in, you're like, well, you know, the world knows a lot about Peter and Peter's written books and he's a public figure and he, you know, that there's a lot of coverage about him every day. Fewer people know Max, but I felt like he was, he was like a character out of a novel, right? Like I, 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 he is a photographic memory, blazingly smart, you know, obsessed with codes and puzzles and games and, and has this incredible story of immigrating to the United States that resonated with me as somebody whose parents immigrated um, and so I thought both for reasons of accuracy, meaning like who, which company of the different pieces that make up PayPal, which company started first? Well, it was Fieldlink in late 98. I, I thought that was historically right. But then I also just got a real kick out of telling Max's story in at this length for what I think is one of the first times that's been told at this length by a third party. You know, he's, he's alive and kicking. He does lots of podcasts. He's on Bloomberg all the time. He runs the public company, a firm. But I went back and had the opportunity to talk to him about his early years and about college and go into transcripts of things that he had done, you know, interview people who were around him in high school even. Um, and so I felt like it was really appropriate to start off. The other thing that is important here, I'll, there's a lot of credit over the years that's been given to Stanford for being like the place that, you know, planted a lot of the roots for the PayPal story. But nobody, it, like, like everyone kind of glossed over the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana and how many and how much of the engineering team 
came out of the Midwest. And so I, I interviewed a gentleman named Luke Nosek who said, hey, listen, if you're going to do this story, he was like testing me. He was like, if you're going to do this story, you damn well better give the University of Illinois like due credit for this, because a lot of us alumni feel like Stanford got all the they got all the kudos and we got lapped out. No, I. Hey, listen, for a guy that if the, some of the people listen to the show know this, I mean, I, I run basically Indiana's entrepreneurial pipeline and we want them to stay. So when I was reading this, like to, to be 100% fair, I did not know that Max went to University of Illinois. Um, you know, and, and, and being a Big Ten guy, I've gone to a number of games there and uh, threw some darts at uh, cams and everything else. So, I mean, like I was, I, I was excited by that. Um, but I also do um, recognize that uh, like that has to be addressed by more cities in the Midwest of uh, like, hey, you've got some great talent here. I mean, obviously, well, here I'm in Indiana. Obviously, we have a very famous alumni that went to Indiana University. Uh, his name is Mark Cuban. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, like selfishly, I, I like hearing all these stories and, and, and well, hope and they don't I'll leave. No, I'll do. I'll go. I'll go one one step further. There's another famous alum named Mark who came out of the University of Illinois, who left the University of Illinois. You know, he had built a browser there. Then he went west and built a company called Netscape. And when Netscape goes public, it's the starting gun for the internet, and it inspires an entire generation of engineers. But I would I would go one step further for this specific group of engineers. Mark Andreessen's success painted a, a, a it, it painted a picture for what you could do with computer code, right? Um, I had multiple people, Jawed Kareem, one of the co-founders of YouTube, who got hit, who cut his teeth at PayPal, Luke Nosick, Scott Bannister, Max Levchin. This whole crew of people took a lot from Mark Andreessen's example because he was just a couple of just a few years older than them, and here he is. He's like a person who came to the same university, and just years later, he's on the cover of Time Magazine. Right. And so that they, they saw a plausible path to doing that themselves. And these aren't my words. These are their words. You, you know, you bring up something. And, and when I tweeted this, uh, you, you picked up on it and responded. Um, you know, quite a few people in this story and a lot of other stories of success uh, in entrepreneurship are immigrants. And, and you know, I, I know Gary Vaynerchuk talks a lot about the immigrant advantage. Um, obviously you are as well. Um, is that also something that drew you to write this book on how many people kind of came together and end up working? And I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm going to later on talk about the actual physical locations, the same places and how crazy that is. But your life as, as someone that immigrated here, was that one of the reasons why you wanted to write this? You know, it, it really wasn't uh, I, like, you know, I, I suppose what I could, what I could tell you, right. is like, yes, that's exactly motivated me. It inspired me. It drew me to the story. Um, the truth of it is I just wanted to find out what these, what this incredible group of people learned while building PayPal and how they built the thing, because it was just a story of creation. For me, these, are, these stories of startup creation are super interesting. They tend to be of like larger than life personalities. You have a lot of daring and courage and like cool problem solving that goes into it. That's the real reason that I was here for the story. It happened though, that a lot of the people who lived the story had a very similar experience to my parents, right? I was five when I came to the United States. So for me to say I'm an immigrant, like technically I am, but it's not like I had to go through the, like, the difficulties of integrating into a new culture. I got airdropped into it and absorbed it by osmosis, right? 
But there are a lot of people in this story, you know, Max arrives when he's in high school. Um, there are plenty of people in this story who grew up in households with accented English the way I did, right? People who you never quite feel like you fit in. You're always got one foot in one culture, one foot in the other. So the long way of answering your question is to say, maybe I felt like an affinity, right? Or I may have been able to do a slightly better job of describing what it is to be a fish out of water in that way. But it wasn't the reason that I came. I will say, I was surprised by just how many of them are immigrants because it isn't just Max. It's Peter Thiel. It's Elon Musk. It's the original co-founders of X.com who don't you know, really stick around. They're all arriving from other places and coming to the United States. And you know, people can, I think, I'm not the person to debate the pros or cons of immigration policy or this or that sort of thing. But I, I do think that, the, that there's something to be said for the kind of entrepreneurial risk it is to leave everything behind and start in a new place, right? Uh, and David Sachs says that at the end of the book. He says, you know, immigrating is an entrepreneurial act. Uh, and he himself um, is, is an immigrant. And so I, I, I do think there's something about that that maybe predisposes people to want to take other risks in their careers. But again, I don't want to extend it too far because I, there are smarter people than me to do that. Yeah, I, um, I want to get into the David Sachs stuff here in a second. Um, like I, I, one of the things that we had talked about previously was why you wrote this book. I mean, I, I, other people have, you know, you know, like there's been some articles, there's obviously been plenty of like notoriety of the PayPal mafia. Um, but I do have to say this, the level of detail that you went into the side stories, the, the emails after the sides, I think I appreciated that the most of the real shit that went down some of the real backstabbing that went down, it played like an episode of uh, like a reality TV at times, but the dignity and the class of like, here's the formal email going out to the rest of the team. Who shared you those emails? Um, and was that agreed upon by everybody? Because I mean, like, that was some in-depth stuff, man. Yeah. So, you know, cards on the table, like I was really fortunate that the people who are in this story are pack rats. And so I had a few different people share big archives of email. And I don't know about you, but I can like barely keep my email square from last week, let alone from 20 years ago. But I was really fortunate that somebody shared them. Here, here's the challenge that I had. You know, I'm not in the takedown business and I'm not in the gossip business. I wanted to understand how this company came to be and how it imprinted the lives of the people who built it. Because the people, those people are still affecting everything today. They do all kinds of interesting stuff. I wasn't there for the tawdry or the personal or the gossipy. But when you look at all company emails that are being sent to hundreds of people that have important and interesting reflections and where they help me make a point, help me illustrate what someone's going through, I felt like I was on fair ground uh, to, to publish some of them. I did not, by the way, I, I was very circumspect in what I used and didn't use. I didn't, I tried not to, in most cases, um, publish things from, let's call them like not public figures, meaning, you know, like it's, it's one thing if you're Elon Musk or Peter Thiel and you're accustomed to a level of press attention, but for someone who's never gotten press attention before, this can be a really uncomfortable experience. So I was super careful there. There are going to be people who maybe think I didn't make the right call or made the right call. But what I tried to do in every case was to find emails where other employees had mentioned the email to me when I was interviewing them. I'll give you one example. There was somebody I interviewed who's an extraordinary person named Denise Aptekar. And Denise said to me, you know, after September 11th, 
Peter sent out this company-wide email about the attacks and trying to understand the attacks that stayed with me for years and years and years. Like I kept thinking about the way that he framed the September 11th attacks. I really hope you can find it. And of course, because I had this big archive, I found it. And I thought it was an interesting note in the same way that she identified. And so it's included in the book, not because I think it's important to understand how the CEO frames this cataclysmic tragedy that happens in the middle of the story. And because I felt like it was illuminating about Peter that there's notes of empathy in there and his own experience of 9-11 and what he thinks it means for the West. I wanted readers to walk away with that. And I felt like it was also historically a pretty important document. But if we're honest, the real reason I included it is because another employee identified that it affected them at the time. Yeah, I, I, I have to say, and um, I thought the book was about what people would like to see in journalism. There was no fanboying out, although let's be honest with each other, you had to have been like a little bit like no freaking way I get to talk to some of these people. At least that's how I would have felt. You've had a you've had a long career of interviewing cool people, so maybe you didn't go through that. I'll let you uh, accept or deny that premise, but the, the, just it was very factual um, in the sense that some of the the uncomfortable arguments that, that you had um, you know written about the dignity and how it was handled uh, through the emails was kind of a really unique look again, without either fanfare or like screw these guys kind of approach. So I, I appreciated that. And, and then, and, and I, I don't want to give anything away because I, I, I hate it when I listen to a podcast and when I'm done with it, I've listened to the book. Um, <laughs> but I will say, um, I think my favorite chapter and the most nah -uh moments uh, was the nuthouse coup. Um, that was shocking um but also shocking on how elon musk handled that uh I, you know again won't give too much away worth the book just that one chapter the whole book is really detailed um but i i really appreciated that I, can i just actually i'll give you i'll give you a bit of color on that chapter and i think you're talking about the, the second coup there are two coups of course because uh, this place was crazy um it's it's when elon is ousted and i will say this about my interview with him I was asking him about one of the most difficult things he's ever been through. And he was a hundred percent, not just willing to engage, but like open about the lessons that he had learned from that experience and was willing to really work through it. Right. I pushed back in a couple of places and he was like, okay, that makes sense, but no, not this. Right. So it does say something interesting that someone who, you know, live such a big life, such a public life, who's associated with so much success. Like part of why I think that is the case is because he went back to this moment and mined it for every scrap, every lesson you could possibly learn, and then enumerated those lessons for me. Now, I think there are people who would say he learned the right lessons, maybe learned the wrong lessons, but this isn't somebody who just like moved it, like put this to the side and was like, ah, there's nothing to see here. I'm going to move on. Like I was actually really impressed by the level of thoughtfulness that he applied to what was one of his biggest failures, which is being ousted out of the company that he created. And more importantly, the grace that he handled with which he handled it after, which was not burning the company publicly, yeah. not torching the employees, not even going after the people who ousted him in the email that he sends to the full company just hours after he's ousted. He asked the company to give those people their full support and remains a board member. And to a person, the board members I interviewed and the other executives said he, he acted 
with real grace in the aftermath of it. And so I, I look, I'm in a position where I had to be objective, but I give him a lot of credit for the way that he handled. I'm not that I'm in a position to, but I had to I give him a lot of credit for the way he handled it in the aftermath. Um, on your question about the, the kind of, was it fun to interview these people? You know, it was. I had the benefit of not talking to them about anything that's going on in their lives today, <laughs> right? We were reflecting and talking about things that happened 20 years ago, so I had it a little bit easier. Um, but I also tried to maintain a certain neutrality. I think you probably noticed in the book that anytime there was an argument, I really tried to present both sides of the argument. Yeah. Um, and I just felt like that was the fair thing to do. Yeah. No, I... I um... I agree. I, I think that it gave me a different perspective on some of them. And then on other people, it, it was exactly as advertised. I mean, I've got to, I've got to be honest with you. Um, and I didn't say this last time we talked, uh, <laughs> I became, so it was, um, over a year ago that I came across, uh, this, uh, tweet storm by a guy named David Sachs. Uh, and it was very, um, well laid out and it was basically if states would run like a SaaS company uh and it, and i immediately sent it to our, our secretary of commerce and he was like man this guy and so i dig deep into this guy's work and um i had the honor of and i hope david listens to this uh i had the honor of having him be on a zoom call with uh our top uh, really like 20, 25 uh, finalists for our innovation and entrepreneurship competition. And the kids were excited and some teachers wanted to be on as well. And one teacher got really excited and shared the Zoom link with just about everybody. Hmm. You see where this is going. So here we are, we get David Sachs. And, and again, a lot of the kids knew who he was. So, I mean, obviously to the average 17 year old, who's David Sachs, right? But these kids knew and they were excited. And um, because one of the teachers and man, like it's, it's all good. He apologized. He's like, I think this is my fault, but we had a couple of Twitter bombers and they said among, they strung together some of the most offensive things that ever could offend. And David just sat there stone-faced and looked straight into the camera camera until our moderator could figure out. Cause we had filled up. I mean, unfortunately it wasn't just the 25 students. We right. started having more people come in. And the moderator tried his best to not let too many people in. We we're trying to verify who they were, but there was a couple of really general names and that's who they were. And uh, I'll always remember because there was no emotion whatsoever uh, mm -hmm. with David. And uh, he just waited until it was over. And when it was over, it wasn't like a, well, that was awkward. He just kept going. He was wow. so robotic and steadfast. It was, it was mesmerizing, but at the same time, the kids felt awful. I was sick. I had tried to track him down and this was our shot at talking to him anyway. That's my side. But but in getting to know his podcast, this guy is so, well, you even wrote it in your book. Um, maybe not the most agreeable, but unbelievably disciplined. And and I, I really enjoyed listening to, I'm sorry, reading those stories. But you gotta, you gotta fill me in on the story of this picture I saw of Peter Thiel looked very pissed. And David Sachs looked like it was Christmas morning and he had beat him at chess, correct? Right, right. So I'll, I'll tell the backstory, but I should also say that, that, that this story kicks off an episode of the All In podcast. I don't know which episode, but it's definitely one of the episodes that was pretty recent where they talk about it. So the I interviewed a lot of people for this book and the number one memory that stood out from PayPal's IPO day, which was February 15, 2002, 
was watching Peter Thiel play 10 simultaneous games of chess in the company parking lot. You know, PayPal, uh, to their credit, uh, they they didn't do the lavish, garish ice sculpture and, you know, uh, mu expensive musical bands type of IPO party. They had kind of cheap kegs of beer, a bunch of folding tables. Uh, I think they ordered food from a local place and they set up these chess boards. Peter plays 10 simultaneous games. Even today, one of David Sachs's claims to fame, I think is, or minor claims to fame, is that he was the only person in those 10 games to defeat Peter. And there's this famous photo that I put in the book of him, you know, arms raised in victory uh, and Peter's, you know, uh, frustrated that he lost. Uh, and I think there's some additional story about how he like, like swept the chess pieces away. I, I hadn't, or, you know, that isn't in the book, but he had swept the chess pieces away in frustration. Um, I, I think that something to know that's a backstory that you wouldn't know just by reading the book is that David was one of the best interlocutors that I had throughout this entire project for a couple of reasons. The first is, he consistently pushed my thinking. So every time I talked to him, I would walk away like really with a sense of like, oh, I have to go deeper here or here or here, or I would say something. And what I was saying was some like really basic observation. And he would just be like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, and then he would go three and four and five levels deep. And it was great as a writer because you're like, this is pay dirt. Like I'm getting somebody who lived the product story to explain everything about the product, which is fantastic. The second thing that people would know, and, and I owe him a great thanks for this, when I had my first interview with him, um, I had done all my homework and I had gotten into a bunch of stories and, you know, he was sort of came in skeptical as anyone would, like, who's this guy who I don't know who wants to write this book. And not only did he take time to talk about those years, but at, in the aftermath, he sent me this, I think it must've been a three-page single-spaced email where he laid out all of the significant moments that he could remember from PayPal history and all of the product innovations that to him represented big triumphs for the company, then put in parentheses the names of people that I should contact to talk about each of those moments and who actually deserves credit and who, and it was one of, I mean, I think I sent him a thank you note back and I sort of restrained my own, my own excitement about it. It was one of the most important documents that anyone shared with me throughout the entire process because what he had given me was a to-do list. Right. He gave me essentially a to-do list and I would go in and I'd be like, okay, did I cover the credit card versus bank account stuff? Great. Did I cover customer service? Great. Did I talk to Elon about, you know, the, the idea of like giving back 5% on savings accounts as a way to keep money in the system? Cool. Check. And I printed out this note and I would keep it by my desk just to make sure that I hit those big points. Now I covered a lot of things that aren't on his list, but that was a real active service for someone who's trying to understand the story later it changed the game for me. That's, that, that is really cool. I mean, that actually may, <laughs> I, I don't want to discredit then. Well, maybe you didn't have to do quite as much research because David did it for you. But um, no, I, in, in fanboying out, and I have to say, like, I enjoyed the book so much. And I'm not saying this because you're my guest. But like, I love the fact that you gave, I mean, you dropped a lot of names uh, on unsung heroes that came in and added a better perspective on code. Matter of fact, I ended up like reaching out to some of these people, just nothing, like in some cases just to follow, but like, um, I'm gonna butcher this poor man's name. And so I'm going to pre-apologize. Was it Sugu? Sogu. Yeah, Sugu. <laughs> how, how do you pronounce his last name? I'm not, I'm also not gonna butcher it. Um, <laughs> Sugu Gamari. Yeah. And I think his friends would would be grateful for that as well. He's Sugu and he is he was a fantastic interviewee and, a, and just a real, 
a real wealth of insight. Well, I mean, but that, but like, I, I there's probably another 15 people that you had mentioned that they had a significant impact in a certain realm or a certain niche. And I like that you did that because, you know, um, a lot of times the things that I've written, it, it's the big names, right? Uh, Reed Hoffman, Elon, you know, David, in some cases, obviously Peter Thiel, but you went into a lot of detail on people that were the supporting team, the people that were questioning things, the people that were fighting over things um, to make things better. So, so I really appreciate that. I, I do have to ask though, um, that original rift between, I'll just say the old school CEO, the guy that's the seasoned veteran, and obviously that rift that if you don't agree to this 50-50 deal, I'm walking, which put Elon in a very missed, boy, I promise I wouldn't go to too many details because you got to read the dang book. But um, has that relationship, like, what is that like now? Did you get a sense? You know, I didn't actually get the chance to ask either of them about what the relationship is like today. Um, but I think that both of them were very open about the circumstances. On Elon's side, you know, he did not want to do the merger with Convinity originally um, at, and felt like his company was a very different company. With, just to give your listeners a bit of background, PayPal is the company you and I know, that they know, that we know for Venmo and for the PayPal service, which is a person-to-person payment service. Elon's original conception of the company was, it was called X.com. And it was supposed to be a revolution in finance. It was going to do everything. You want a mortgage? X.com. You want a loan? X.com. Credit line? X.com, et cetera, et cetera. Because Elon's view, which operates from this kind of first principles place, is why should I have to pay money in you know, exchange fees or in transaction costs? Like that's clun- A, it's expensive, and B, it's clunky. Like why should my financial life live in 14 different places? That was not what the PayPal service was doing. PayPal was the payments piece of that. He thought it had a bigger vision, a bigger conception. And so there's a disagreement. And, you know, the then CEO uh, essentially says like, we have to do this murder or else I'm going to resign and it'll cost, you know, you won't be able to raise around, et cetera. It's all written in the book. It's appropriately dramatic. What I will say is that both, both the, that CEO as well as Elon were really honest about the circumstances, meaning Elon was honest. Like he didn't want to do the merger and he was sort of led there against, against his wishes uh, because he thought his company was supposed to do something different. And the person who, who forced the, the merger said, look, I thought this was the only way out. I thought it was the only way we we're going to like escape this insane battle that we were fighting with these Confinity guys. And they were like, and what, what, what everyone said is they were like, what's interesting is Elon had never really encountered competitors who were like as fierce, but Max and Peter were quite as fierce. And so you have this fight to the death and they're bleeding money. And so, you know, I could only write it in light of what we know, which is what happened at the end. But I think in, in everyone was really honest about, look, like the merger was a complicated marriage. It was a shotgun wedding, right? It was not, this was not some like immediate, like, oh, we're going to meld. Everything's going to be fine. It was pretty, it was pretty dicey. Um, I think that what I hope the book does, because a bunch of people have gotten this wrong in, in the past. People have written Elon out of this story any number of times, and unfairly so. And I feel like part of what people miss is that he recruited any number of insanely talented people to come and join the company. And I'll give you a small cross-section. Roloff Botha, who today, you know, steward Sequoia Capital, uh, was an Elon recruit. Jeremy Stoppelman, the co-founder of Yelp, was an Elon recruit. 
and on down the line. I mean, you can go person after person and there's so many talented people that Elon found and championed and recruited. And what happened when this, in the aftermath of this story is that because the X.com side of the company kind of got shunted aside, a lot of those people, I feel like never really got the kind of credit that they deserve, nor did the full vision for X.com ever really get explored. And so that was part of what I spent time talking to Elon about was like, explain that vision to me, explain what it means. And that's what I, at least one thing I hope that the book does is kind of restore the X.com part of this story. Yeah. Looking back on that, I mean, I I thought it was, it played out like a, a movie when the first offer was so shockingly, insultingly low. And in the end, they end up going 50, 50 only because of the insistence of what I will call the uh, distinguished, like I, I can't imagine playing out any other way because his insistence of, listen, like the respect he had for Peter Thiel, because obviously the guy's beyond brilliant, but the, like even the 60, 40, which sounded really equitable, you go from 92, eight to 60, 40. And the guy was still like, no, I'm not sure. But, you know, like, I, like I, I, a movie that might have was that truth can sometimes be stranger than fiction. Like in a movie, people will say, oh, no, no deal would ever go from 92, eight to 60, 40, let alone 50, 50. So I, I'm certainly glad because having a distinguished CEO and being a calm and, 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 you know, having a, a young brash, although I must say, I didn't find Elon's story too brash. The guy was successful and yeah, he bought a sports car he couldn't handle, but uh, in the end, uh, he handled things with dignity and grace. Anyway, I'm not fanboying out on him, but um, I, I just, I, I, I think that I agree with how it was decided because if it were a 60-40, I think that um, Peter and his team would have bounced. Obviously, the 92-8 thing never would have. So I just, I found that extraordinary. Yeah, um, can I, I'll say, yeah. I'll, just one thought on this that I think a lot of people, that it, it's very easy to miss. Um, you know, in the last several weeks, there's been a lot of news about, about Elon. And bef- let's say before the last week's events in the Ukraine, you know, there was all of this coverage about whether he does or doesn't live in a $50,000 house and like where he lives, right? There was all of this coverage about this and that thing. And the entire world missed that the National Academy of Engineering elected him as one of its members for this year. The National Academy of Engineering is not a place you get on because you are wealthy or because you are famous or because you know the right people. It's because your scientific peers vote you on as a member. And he was added because of his contributions to like physics and engineering. And this is someone who I think is often misrepresented in the press as uh, a P.T. Barnum type figure. I actually find that characterization to be like it's the opposite. If anything, like they're, they're missing entirely the level of depth that he brings to problem solving. Um, now, I mean, I think you can say what people can say, whatever they want to say about Twitter and everything else. But I think that there's this tendency to look at someone who is 
who operates in this way and think, oh, this is just like a fly by night. Like, and I could honestly, I, I can't tell you how many instances I found in which that's not true. And I will tell you that the person I spent a lot of time interviewing was his first boss and one of his early, one of his first bosses and one of his earliest mentors. His name is Dr. Peter Nicholson. And when Dr. Peter Nicholson hires Elon to work at Scotiabank as an intern, one of the things that he identifies is he's like, this kid's got a love for science, right? Like the way that Dr. Nicholson did. Dr. Nicholson had studied physics and operations engineering. He worked with punch card computers, like back when they were punch cards. They both have a mutual love affair of science and engineering, and it goes really, really deep. Elon's interest in space. I talked, Dr. Nicholson said, oh yeah, his first love was space even when he was 19 and working at the bank. Um, all of these things are actually multi-decade long commitments and interests. And I think we are too quick to characterize him as uh, the way that sometimes he is portrayed in the media. I think it's actually unfair given the longevity that like, I don't know about you, man, but I, there are a lot of interests I had when I was 18 and 19. I have not maybe had the stick-to-itiveness to stick with them for 30 years, right? And continue to grind away at them and build companies based on them. But his commitment to his principles goes back that way. When he talks about mankind being a multiplanetary civilization, that goes back to like his teens and early 20s. Um, and so I think there's something to be said for that. I would say that the other reason is because there aren't, science can often seem dull and it can often seem stereotypically nerdy. He has made science, engineering, physics, rocket science cool again, right? And like, that's amazing. Like you work with young people, Don, like it's got, it, it, it is now like easier to persuade, I think, young people like this is really cool. <laughs> I, so I'm, I'm going to jump into culture here in a second, but in the spirit of equally polarizing, uh, he's not quite the household name, but somebody that I, I was even criticized. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I had bought um, several copies of Zero to One. Uh, and it was fine when it came out. And then a couple people were upset because uh, Peter Thiel is very outspoken. Uh, and and that is also another, like, I, I appreciated the fact that you didn't bring up Peter's politics or his sexual orientation. Because a, a lot of people just obsess over that, that he was, he's, you know, a libertarian slash right wing person in a city that you're not supposed to be. Um, and I'm, gl I'm glad you just left that out. Um, because instead, you, you focused on his intellect. Uh, because I, I, in some of the things that's been written about him, it's almost exclusively him being uh, a right wing person. Um, can, I can I tell you, though, why I why there's a reason there's a method to the mayhem, right? People are people may think I left it out. Uh, to, to avoid it. Here's why I left out things like that. And by the way, same similar things about other characters. Uh, Reed Hoffman's very active politically because their politics and their sexual orientation did not matter for the creation of PayPal from 1998 to 2002. If you're going to tell an honest story, you have to look back at 1998 to 2002 and ask the question I was asking, which from the beginning is how did this company came to be and who helped build it and how did building it affect them and their lives? So a couple thoughts on that that are just like sub thoughts. One, if I heard, Don, from dozens of employees that Peter refused to hire somebody who disagreed with him politically, I would have been honor bound and truth bound to publish that. 
but I didn't hear one word of that. So it wasn't like I avoided his politics because they're controversial. I avoided his politics because they weren't a part of the story from 1998 to 2002. They're going to be people that are upset that there's not a single mention of Barack Obama or a single mention of Donald Trump in this book. Do you want to know why? Because they weren't relevant to the creation of PayPal from 1998 to 2002. And so in my mind, like there are politicians I mentioned. I mentioned President Clinton and I mentioned the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act. Why? Because the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act affects how Elon thinks about the business at the time and the regulations that he's going to have to overcome. I mentioned Representative Jim Leach, who creates this legislation around gambling laws. Why? Because PayPal is involved in the gambling payment processing industry and it matters. I think there's a real temptation to write these stories that are historical stories in light of what we know today. And then to, to use that as like a prism, like everything has to connect back to this thing, right? But that's insane. Like it's, it just doesn't make any sense. It's not factually accurate, which by the way, the other thing about having the emails is you know that they're not factually accurate. When when Peter writes the September 11th note, there's not anything in there. There's it's, it's a political note, but it's small p political, meaning he's thinking about politics. He's not thinking about parties, right? And so I would say that like, that drove a lot of my decision-making was, Okay, okay, okay. Like, let's take a step back. Why am I writing about the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Salt and Peppa, and President Clinton? It's because what I'm writing about is 1998 to 2002. And I, and you know what's funny? I'll give you another another anecdote about this. The way that I manage this for myself, I told my friends not to send me news about these people. I actually asked them not to. And the reason is, I said I don't. I want to try to avoid it. It's already all over the place, but it's going to pollute my understanding of who they are from the, in that period. And, and I, you know, I just, if I had heard something from enough employees about politics or about this or about libertarianism or about this, I would have written it, but I didn't hear that. And I interviewed over 200 people for this story. So I had a lot of material to work with. Well, thank you. Um, and, and I have to say the only time that it, like it merged, I like the fact that you, it was like a, a, a one or two sentence thing that um, <laughs> Peter Thiel and Reed Hoffman would fight like cats and dogs over politics. But when they had to get down to bed, like these, like they couldn't be more opposite yet. They work together. Like, thank you. Well, cause I like, I half this, like I was in a kind of a debate with a, a person who was talking to me about Elon and he's like, well, everything he's accomplished because he came from privilege. I'm like, so was he not supposed to do anything? I mean, like, would you say that if he was just a trust fund baby, he wouldn't be a, that wouldn't be garbage. So the fact that he came from a successful family and he came over here and then became successful again, that's bad. So I like it when, when people try to polarize and pol politicize everything, I'm just, I'm just grateful that the politics had no bearing in building PayPal or X.com. And I appreciated you not doing that. Yeah. I, but the other thing is I'm sure that for a lot of people who are listening, like companies aren't, typically, if they're successful, defined by one person's overriding worldview or political view. Because like companies have to make products that appeal to people who are politically very diverse, right? And so it's it's sort of like, like if you were starting a company, I'm just trying to play the experiment back. If you were starting a company, you're like, oh, I'm only going to sell to one half of the country. Like your, your board of directors or investors would be well within their rights to say, that's really stupid. <laughs> that's, that's dumb. And you shouldn't do that because cutting off 50% of the audience is not a good idea. Now, I'm not like a, I'm not a, I'm not a, someone who was going to ignore something that stared me in the face. If enough employees came to me and said, this was a thing, right. Or I interviewed them and they're like, this is a real thing. But I just found time and again, 
that no one I interviewed was really like overly political. Here's what they were worried about. They were worried about the survival of the company. And it was about like making the company successful. And this was a startup under siege from the beginning. And so my story, I was driven by the facts. And the facts of the situation are that you have a big group of people, more than around 220 people in Palo Alto, several hundred people in Omaha, Nebraska. They're trying to make a startup work from 1998 to 2002. I let the facts tell, tell the story. I did not imprint upon it some political opinion that exists in light of what we know in 2022. And I, I, you know, I hope it works. I, I think it works because I think that's exactly how startups are. You can be with somebody you disagree with politically and build a startup because what you're trying to do is make the revenue and cost model work regardless of who your customers are. Yes. Well, I, I, I will wrap this up by saying, because I, 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 I want to continue, move away from the book and talk to Jimmy Sony, the, the lifelong learner. Um, but I, I, I agree. I, I think that this book plays out like the movie, uh, that it could be that the fact that, you know, a lot of ways they were lucky that PayPal didn't figure out we could maybe we should do this on our own. They they had so many twists and turns and breaks and highs and lows. And it's it's a very well um, documented book. So highly recommend it. Can I can, really, can I can I just riff on something you said yeah, to yeah, yeah. earlier that we didn't really get to riff on, but that's really important. Yeah. Um, there are a bunch of names in this story that people know. They know Elon, they know Peter, they know David. I really, it, it, I was really careful and also trying to be diligent in making sure that I knocked on a lot of doors and a lot of like sent cold emails to people who never actually get any attention for the work they do. And that was because some of the best stories and best innovations and best little product hacks and growth hacks and moments and crazy things that happen come from people that never wanted press attention, right? You Actually, I'll tell you one story. As I was doing the reporting, I emailed this one, one gentleman and he sent me back a questionnaire. And I had to fill out a questionnaire to, to sort of justify what I was doing and why I should talk to him. And even as we started, he said, look, I don't do press. This is not like a thing. I, I don't need my name in lights. I'm talking to you because you seem like you're doing this the right way. You're talking to a lot of us. You got a lot of people on, on board, but I'm not somebody who does this a lot, right? Um, one of the board members who was most instrumental to my understanding of the company is a gentleman named John Malloy. John is not famous at all. I think I found two, two YouTube videos total or one or three, you know, three YouTube videos total that he'd ever done. This is the, one of the lead investors in Waze and the, or one of the earliest investors in PayPal. And he too is not somebody who's like out getting quoted everywhere or is like at the, at the Met Gala. And he's, that's not who he is. He's an investor who has thoughtfully picked startup founders to back and really cares about that ecosystem. I wanted people to learn about him. I wanted people to learn about Julie Anderson, who basically came up with the solution that fixed one of the company's biggest problems, which was customer service. She, her sister, and this seed group of customer service agents in Omaha solved this huge expensive problem. I wanted people to know about her and about that achievement and where it came from. So I, I really, you mentioned it, but I want to elaborate on it because here's the thing. We tell these stories generally based on who's in the boardroom and who's in the C-suite. And we forget that actually the best stuff ha does not happen there. Right. The, the stuff that really like is the nuts and bolts of figuring out a company rarely happens in those places. And so, you know, it was more of just a like sense that I got where I was like, if I don't interview Sanjay Barga, Bargava and Julie, I'm missing out on the best stuff that's in this story. Yeah. The, even the, the people that were, you know, on the 
technology side and, and the writing code side, and you, you included so many people and some of the insights they had, the, the, the fights, uh, the, the late nights, the getting, you know, like two hours of sleep. Yeah. Uh, I, I like the fact that you even included the addresses because not going to lie, I Google Maps some of them just because I had to. Uh, even the fact that PayPal, or even the fact that PayPal and X.com were literally in the same damn building and then the yeah. end competing with that, that was absolutely crazy. You know, one of the things that I did was I did the same Google Maps exercise and there were two addresses that were on University Avenue, which is where both of these companies were born, Elon's company and, and Peter and Max's company. And one was at 394 University Avenue and the other was at 165. So one of the things I did was I actually just hung out on the street and I kind of like walked back and forth, like just to get a feel for like how close they were geographically and like how tense it must have been when you're in this you're locked in Mortal Kombat, you know, Confinity, which is Peter and Max's company and Elon's X.com are locked in Mortal Kombat. And they're like two blocks from each other. <laughs> and Max would say things to his engineers like when you're walking by the other office, just like be careful what you say. The walls have ears. Right. Um, and I, I thought of this. And so I actually spent time sort of wandering around Palo Alto trying to get a feel for the place. Now, granted, it was 20 years later. A lot's changed. But I did the same thing on Stanford's campus. Uh, and I kind of just would visit places where this this story happened to get a feel for it. Yeah, I took a group of students out there and like, you know, you, you the HP garage. I mean, some of these other things. Your book hadn't come out yet. So we, uh, well, heck, I'm sure we ate at a restaurant or two right there. So um, it was great. Uh, I, I do have to go into um, and really transition. Like, I, I'm really deeply interested in creating cultures. Um, and, and from everything I read and, and really even studying, you know, whether that be, you know, Tony from Zappos or, you know, pick your, you know, Steve from you know, Apple, things of this nature, building that ecosystem of, of innovation, uh, what do you think that would look like in school? Oh, if that's Jimmy that's Sony, because I'm, I'm going to tell you what, because like I've, I've let you a little bit know about my class that I had and, you know, I've, I've gone on to do stuff for the state. But um, if Jimmy Sony had let's and you can pick whatever grade you can go elementary, you know, because I know you've got a child that age. You can go middle school, you can go high school. What is a school or what is even a singular class look like to create that ecosystem in education? Or at least for one period of day. Yeah, I'll offer two answers. The first is that there's there's other people you ought to interview here. I If I have my facts right, and I'm not the expert on this subject, but it, if I have my understanding of it right, Elon has actually built a school. Uh, I think it's called Odd Astra, uh, and it's based on the SpaceX campus. And I think it was solving his own problem, like trying to figure out a school for his kids that he felt uh, would work and make sense. Um, I don't know anything about it. I just know that it's there and I've always been intrigued by it. And some friends who are in the education community have spoken about it. Um, and I think the founder has done some new things and, and all the rest. So there's, there is that. So there, there might be something that's better answer than what I'm about to provide. Right. Um, I would say that I have a, a six-year-old daughter. And one of the things that I notice about her is that she has an entrepreneurial spirit. And what I mean by that is not that she's looking at profit and loss statements and knows how to like do, you know, like complex, like tabulations on a spreadsheet. What I mean is 
She has an idea. She has a process by which she wants to build that idea. And she can like cajole me into participating and cajole other people into participating in a fairly interesting way, right? Not always the best way, but like, like she gets it done, right? I don't have a good description for what that is, but I find it very impressive. And I think a lot of kids have it. And it seems to me that some form of project-based learning where there's something at stake in the outcome and where you have some measures of accountability is probably a pretty good rough exercise for what startups come to be. Now, full disclosure, like I am, I am not somebody who's like done an exhaustive look at case studies of every startup ever created. This is this book is not good to grade, right? It's not a management book. It's a, it's a book about a story of one company. But it seems to me that in looking at the lives of these people, Max Lepchin had four failed startup, uh, three failed startups at UAUC then had one very, very small exit before he did PayPal. And I think in other podcasts, actually, he said he had four failures. I would, I think it's like sort of like three failures and then a small exit and then starts PayPal. But in each case, what he's doing is he's building something from scratch with other people with the idea that like, they're going to try to make money from it, right? Doesn't always work out. Elon, I found the most amazing document, one of the most amazing documents I found was actually an ad for one of his first companies, which he created at Queen's University when he was at Queen's University in Canada, Ontario, Canada. And um, it was Musk Computer Consulting. And I found this ad buried in the archives and it was an early business, right? He had always had that instinct of building something that was a business with other people and then trying to make money from it. I, I don't you know, I, I, you can't sort of say that it's a direct line from there to PayPal, to Tesla, to SpaceX, but it's also not like some random thing. Yes. The guy is building businesses, right? Right. And as I've started to even work on this book, one of the things that my daughter and I talk about a lot now is the lemonade stand we're going to do this summer, because it's the right time for me to say to her, okay, here's what you're going to pay for, for the lemonade ingredients. Here's what you're going to charge. You get to keep the profits. Let's figure this out. And kids are remarkable at figuring this out. Yeah. I'm radically over, oversimplifying what is a very No, no. Complex. So, but, yeah, but like, like, no, this is where I want to riff because I, in the last time we talked, I don't know if I really explained it. Actually, I, I know I didn't. Um, so, years ago, I listened to a Daniel Pink TED talk and it was a spiritual awakening. And more or less, he was talking about what they had at, you know, at Atlassian and later on at Google. They gave him one day a week to work on what they wanted to work on. So, I, I took that, I showed it to my class. And I said, okay, what if I gave you a class where what you wanted to work on is what you get, but you had to show me what you wanted to do and we'd set some measurable goals and you'd have to get it done. So I'd have them like write two week proposals. This is what I want to do. This is what I want to get done. And what I heard you say and what the reality was, what I learned was it was learning to fail. And that was cool because the, the furthest thing away we get from our school is if you failed, now you're definitely not going to get to Stanford, right? Yeah. But the students were learning some cases what not to do. I had heck one of my one of my co-founders, right? When he was in my class, his his whole thing was I want to be a software engineer. He started doing it more and more. And he's like, I'm decent at it, but there's no way I can do this. He found other passions. And I'd have several kids that were like, Whoa, I was about ready to go to college for this. This straight up sucks. Well, how many kids changed their majors in college? What, 70% probably? And so giving an opportunity for students to try something, adjust, not knocking off their letter grade, because when they when it blew up in their face, I'm like, what did you learn from it? Well, I learned that this isn't for me. Great, change projects next week. 
Or if they're like, well, I set too high of metrics and I, okay, what are you going to do? That learning how to adjust is everything, whether that is in first grade or whether that's in seventh or you're a senior in high school. Um, because like I'm obsessed with culture build. And I think that that first culture is, and even you wrote about in the book, the one guy, I'm trying to remember who it was, but he lost a shitload of money and he was like, I'm so sorry. And they're like, don't worry about it. Right. We'll adjust. Right. And he was like, I freaking, I think the quote was, I freaking love working here. It's yeah. that kind of culture that gets me fired up. And it's also that kind of culture I don't find in many spaces in school. And so that's, that's why I asked. And no, it, there's a great quote. There's a great Musk quote in the book that I dug up from this video that he did. In my obsessive research, I found this video that he did with Chinese television. And like you have to go to like minute 29 or something to hear him say this. But he says, uh, someone asked him what the, about what a startup is. And he says, you start out and you're mostly wrong. And he said, and then you do a process of recursive self-improvement and you discard what doesn't work, right? It's roughly like that. I know the phrase recursive self-improvement was in there. And I found that quote to be so interesting and like such an interesting framing because he literally admits from the beginning, when you start out, you're mostly wrong, right? And, and then there's this great line in the book that um, a product, it was a product person whose name is Giacomo Di Gregoli. Giacomo said one of his, like one of his most memorable must quotes, he said, Elon always used to say, if you can't tell me the four ways you fuck something up before you got it right, you probably weren't the person who worked on it which I also thought was just like, it. A, it stuck with Giacomo for 20 years, right? But it was such an interesting thing to think about. Actually, failure isn't, it's not even like the side effect. Failure is sort of par for the course or something like this. Like if you aren't the, if you can't tell me the four ways you messed this thing up, you probably weren't the person who worked on it. Yeah. Um, I don't think the educational system is geared in that direction. I will be candid. Like it wasn't the way I was educated. Um, and I, as a parent now, I think about it a lot, meaning- yeah. How am I normal? How am I making failure okay? Making it something that you learn from and something that you actually use as like part of your toolkit to like move forward and figure something out. Um, I'm going to ask you a question, but before I say that, this is exactly why I so. <laughs> in my later adult years, I don't like pain and suffering, so I don't really watch many movies anymore that involve violence. Uh, my idea of a, of a perfect movie is Kung Fu Panda. Um, because that is learning, right? <laughs> there is no level zero. Check that. There is a level zero. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I, I love animated films because they have such a great story arc and it always involves that hero's journey. Um, you know, uh, thank you, Joseph Campbell. Um, but uh, I, I think that in, in reading The Founders, I saw a lot of similarities between this. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Joseph Campbell's work, but that, yeah, yeah. that story arc and like, it was, it, it, it played out very similarly. And, and, uh, and, and I love that. So l- let me ask you this then, um, personal question, uh, and feel free to say a name if you feel comfortable with it. And, and, uh, who was your favorite teacher and why you, yeah. you said you've got, you've got, you like later on in life, you've got some opinions about education. Who was fave? Who was number one? Yeah. And again, my, my opinions about education carried a gigantic asterisk, which is like, you should not be asking me about education. Um, what I would say, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost, you know, I had a bunch. I was really fortunate. I had a whole bunch. But the person that made the biggest difference was my high school English teacher. His name was Mr. Palmquist. Um, and I'll just tell a story of the moment that it was like he blew my hair back. It was September 11th, uh, 2001. And I was in high school. 
And I remember he had, I had him for like third or fourth period. So the, the attacks had already happened and I get to his class and like every class that day is basically just like chaos. It's pandemonium, right? Everyone's talking, chattering, there are rumors spreading. And Mr. Palmquist, one of the things that was refreshing about him was that he was very level-headed and he was, he understood that he wasn't going to be able to teach a normal class that day. And he wasn't going to pretend like he was or discipline us for being unruly. Instead, he did this genius thing. He got up at the front of the class and he said, look, today's not going to be normal. He's like, it's a really sad day. I need a handful of minutes of your attention. And then the rest of the class, like, just do whatever you guys want. Like, we'll bring TVs in here. If people want to watch news, if you anyways, talk to me, you can. He said, here's what I need. I'm going to hand out a, a short story and I'm going to give everyone the short story. I want you to just read it at your desk. And then once you're done, look up at me. And then once everyone's looking up at me, you're good to go. And we all got the short story. We read it. And I remember actually paying attention to the words on the page and actually absorbing the story while it was happening, while everything was going on around us. We all look up at Mr. Palmquist and he said, listen, you're not going to remember much. You'll remember other memories from today, but here's what I want you to remember that for the last 10 minutes, a piece of writing actually held your attention in spite of the fact that everything around you is going, is going the way it's going, that there've been attacks on American soil. And he said, that's what writing can do. And then it was like class dismissed. And I was like, yeah. I, was, I just remember yeah. being blown away. And he was that kind of teacher. He was very practical. He was not somebody who like, is like, everyone needs to pay attention because it doesn't matter if it's 9-11 and we have third period English and there's this. He was like, I'm just going to prove a point to you and then you all can do whatever you're going to do. And he changed my life. I mean, he was somebody who just taught me the power of words. He taught me to love like writing in English and just like actually enjoy it, enjoy reading. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's one of those things. Everyone, I mean, I think I was really lucky. Not everyone has a teacher like that, but Mr. Pompkis was the one who did it for me. So um, I'm going to correct you then because you're like, Oh, you shouldn't ask me. Cause no, uh, I think, I think that's where a lot of times we're, we're not thinking correctly. Mm. Um, when people are like, oh, my opinion is on education. We have to, you've studied culture. You've studied how people work. You've studied and written about how things are built. Um, that is school. Uh, I think of the fact that every single town has an innovation center that's already been paid for by taxes. We could solve yeah. problems from it. You don't have to just be about school. My favorite, my favorite quote about education. Oh my gosh. My listeners on this podcast are so sick of me. I quote this thing every uh, like five episodes, but it's by Seth Godin. Education can be boiled down to two things, solving interesting problems and the leadership to get it done. Holy uh, shit. Yeah. Because I have dissected that thought about it a million ways. And it's absolutely true. Um, yeah. Your teacher in that moment solved an interesting problem and he made an interesting point. And in yeah. the leadership of look at me when you're done and everybody yeah. knew the seriousness of it, dude, that's kudos to him. It was, it was genius. And the thing about it too, is that it was recognizing that he wasn't going to keep our attention for an hour. He got yeah. it for seven to 10 minutes. But he leveled with he you. Absolutely. Yeah. He leveled yeah. with my similar experience. I was teaching middle school and I, and, and God bless you, Vicky Noblet, but like, or no, maybe it was Joe. Then is it basically right after it happened, my kids, freaked out a little bit because we were taking what it was the standardized test. And so we were mm -hmm. pencils down everybody. and Alicia, my wife called and um, she told me that not only because I'd heard about a plane crashing into the building mm -hmm. and she called me and told me the first building went down with everybody inside. And I went, Holy shit. Are you serious? 
I said that in a room full of sixth graders. At first they started <laughs> giggling and then they saw the look in my face and they're like, ah. oh, and I this gave this nervous look like nothing, get back to work. And right. I like it was this was a state mandated test. Matter yeah. of fact, I'm going to I'm going to make sure I post this uh, on, on Facebook is like every September 11th, those kids in that classroom write me every year. And yeah. so they're like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And so all of a sudden the email comes in like, do not turn on your TV. Do not talk about it. What did I have to do, Jimmy? I had to talk about it. Right. One, because they were so deeply concerned that I had this ghost look on my face that I said yeah. shit in front of the class and that yeah. they knew that I was hurting. And I just. Uh, yeah, that real moment your teacher shared with you, he leveled with you. He says, look, we yeah. got to read this, but afterwards it's on you. I, yeah. man, kudos you know, to him. I'll, That's a great I'll story. Offer, I'll offer another, another thought on edge on education. And again, like the reason I attached the disclaimer is because there's plenty of people thinking about this all the time. So I just want to be, it, this isn't a place where like, I'm, I'm thinking about this subject all the time, but I'm speaking about it as somebody who has been really fortunate to have a life that's like defined by the things I get randomly curious about. Right. Um, I think there's something to be said for the, the, the encouragement of curiosity broadly, like the idea of curiosity and here's, here's why, and I'm, I'll be more precise about it, hopefully, but I, I think that there's this, this thing that I notice in my, my daughter, but in also kids, her age and in and around her age is that for her, there's no subject that's actually off limits to get obsessed with, even if she's obsessed with it for an hour. She can be obsessed with a plastic fork for an hour, right? She's the greatest thing ever, right? Or a piece of cardboard or whatever it is. And I think as we get older, there are certain subjects that if you become obsessed with them, they become on or off limits, right? History and like your math homework, that's on, that's on, that's okay. But video games is off limits. That's like, that's a toy. That's like a, a fringe thing or like a thing that you should do as recreation, right? And I do... You, you can't tell the story of PayPal without telling the story of some really obsessive video game players. So I wrote this whole article about Elon's interest in video games, which goes way beyond what people can appreciate. He's a big StarCraft player. He talks about Halo on, on Twitter. And to understand him, you have to understand video games and that passion and the real obsession with not just like playing the games, but how they're designed, how they're coded, how they're made. It's a big part of the PayPal story, actually. And so I think that there's like... Somebody, Julie Anderson in the story, after she finished up at Deutsche Bank, she's kind of burned out. She goes and apprentices with a stained glass maker for six months. Max Levchin is having lunch with a colleague and he has a book with him. And what the colleague's uh, girlfriend or, or partner said, he says, oh, what are you reading? And he goes, oh, this is my physicist of the moment. And later, this isn't in the book. He, later, he goes away to the bathroom and, and the one person leans over to the other and goes, who has a physicist of the moment? Um, there is a love of curiosity broadly that is a part of this story, but is also like a part of the lives of the people that I know who are most successful. Meaning you kind of just keep going like down whatever the rabbit hole is and you just like love the rabbit hole so much and you become obsessed with it. And then at some point, if it if you need to, you find a way to like make that profitable or make it remunerative or find a way to make it like make sure you keep the lights on. But I, I do find that like, I think we kill curiosity in kids as they grow up. And it's really kind of nuts. Like if comic books happen to be your thing in life, like I hope that you have people in your life who are like, you could just be a really epic comic book designer, right? Like you don't have to do things the way they've always been done. I am not a Roman historian by training. I don't have a PhD in Roman history. I don't have a PhD in information theory and I'm not a history historian of Silicon Valley. I've written books on all three subjects. 
And it's because I'll go one step, maybe I'll go one step further than everybody else and asking questions and knocking on doors and just reading stuff. I, I think that is, I don't know where it comes from. I, I mean, I suppose I have theories, but I think that it's something we ought to encourage because like roving curiosity is a really cool thing. I, I, there's an energy about curiosity that we should try to, you know, have more of. You have it. You, you have it. It's like a thing that is a part of your life too. You reach out to people and ask them to talk for two, three hours. You know, this is like a big, I think it's something that's maybe underrated, uh, but wildly over delivers in your life if you can cultivate it. No, I, I agree. I, I, there's an episode I just recorded and I'm going to have out uh, in a couple of weeks. There is a doctor I met and he has four companies in such weird areas. And he, it didn't dawn on him that like, I mean, I'm talking, it's, it's all over the place. And he's also, I mean, he's got things in medicine, but also medicine in space. He's on, you know, um, uh, like just several weird different areas. Um, also uh, uh, with Singularity University involved with them, just all, all and then, so I go, I know what it is. You're insanely curious. And he's like, you're right. He's like, I, I never thought of that way. He's like, every now and then I'll just like, somebody will bring something up and I'll like, that would be cool. And then he chases it. So yeah. I, I agree with you. I, I think that, you know, a lot of time, well, this is the reason why I offered that daggone class, because if you had an insane curiosity in something and you wanted to chase it down, there was no penalty. If you, after four weeks go, well, this sucks. Great. You, you, cause you could fake it or you could wait till the semester is over, but I encouraged you to like, that's why every two weeks you could pause, you could write a reflection at two weeks and go, I'm going to go on and I'm going to write new goals that are more realistic. Or you can go, cause I, I can't tell you how many kids I knew. I had like several kids in that class. Like my dad said, I should get into coding. I'm going to be a coder. And they would for two weeks. And they were like, I can't do it. It's just not for me. Awesome. Yeah. I saved you time. I saved you money. So, you know, you know, the amazing thing that one of the things I think of is like, I know we we're in internet bashing mode. Like everybody just like has some reason they don't like the internet. One of the nice things about the internet is it is the ultimate fertile ground for people's random curiosities. You can find a tribe of people who love what you love and who become really obsessed with it in the same way that you do. And that's very, very cool. And it's very powerful. And we've never actually had that before. Right. And so it can be anything. It can be the Beatles. It can be a documentary you like. It, there's probably a subreddit for it. Right. Um, and that's like, that's insanely cool and very, very powerful, you know, particularly for kids where if you have an interest and you're quirkily interested in it and nobody else is, you're often like, you know, you're sort of cast out or you're bullied or whatever. Like, one of the neat things about the internet is allows people who are intensely curious about something specific to get like self-sort and to like find each other and find the fanboys. I will give you an example actually that comes from the research for this book. And it's the best example I can give you. I went down the rabbit hole of trying to understand the McLaren F1 sports car because it's the sports car that Elon buys after he has his first startup success. And it's a million dollar car, puts a big dent in his bank account and he crashes it, almost dies. And it's one of the things that in the story, Peter Thiel's in the car, so it's relevant to the story. It's not just some random story. But I also, like, I knew that with everything Elon related, there's a level of depth to it that people miss. It's not a guy who just bought a Ferrari or a Lamborghini. He bought a McLaren. And the reason is the McLaren is an engineering work of art. And if you go back and you read the articles when the McLaren debuts in the late 90s and early 2000s, this car is described in terms that, like, 
honestly are kind of unbelievable. There's this one article that says, imagine if you gave the best person to create something, unlimited resources to create that thing. That's what the McLaren is for cars. And so I go back, I'm digging around the internet. I find this, this name keeps coming up. This guy happens to be an expert and his, 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 the only, I can only really track down his first name, but then I did a little bit more digging and I found like his LinkedIn profile or his Facebook profile or something. And I, I send him a Facebook message. And I was like, listen, I don't know if you're the Eric who's like commenting on all these McLaren forums, but you seem to know a lot about these cars. Could I just like talk to you? He sends me a mess, message back, sends me a cell phone and I text him and he says, hey, I'm free tonight. He gave me a two hour and 30 minute seminar on the McLaren F1, all of its intricacies, how it was imported from Europe to the United States, the changes you needed to make to make it street legal in the United States, the different configurations of the car, who the owners of the car were, what the history of the car was. He knows everything. He doesn't even own a McLaren. This is just like a thing he got super into. And now he's just like ridiculously into it for all these reasons. I was so inspired when I met him. He's quoted in the book. I was so inspired when I met him because I just, that kind of roving curiosity is something I think we need to just celebrate more of. In all transparency, uh, Jimmy and I had done an interview and it was about 30 minutes and we ran out of time. We wanted to do part two and we really started digging in and you're like, Hey man, I'm going to rush you the book. I want you to read it cover to cover. And then let's do this all over again. And I'm certainly glad we did. Not that the first version was bad. It was great. Right. But I really learned a lot about your style of writing. I loved the book. Um, and I'm excited for, for other people to read it. You were generous enough. You wanted to, to give away a signed copy. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to. I think, you know, I just, I appreciate how much time you are putting into building ecosystems that, are about this, whatever this thing is that we've been talking about, right? This weird mix of like ambition and curiosity. So the least I could do is uh, is give away a, a signed copy to somebody who wants to, to take a look. Okay. Um, how do we decide who who gets the book? You Should we randomize me? this? I mean, what, do you, what do you want to do? I, 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 think, um, I think that we've talked a lot about teachers, right? We've talked a lot about mentors. And so maybe you're the social media expert. You should you should frame this up for people. Help me help me think of a creative way to do it. Okay, you're right. Uh, we've given a lot of credit to who your favorite mentor or teacher was. So let's do that. Um, I will tweet this out uh, when the pod, when the podcast is ready. Uh, retweet this and let me know who your favorite teacher was. Um, if you can tag that teacher, give him some love. She would or he would appreciate it. Matter of fact, I'm going to track down your high school English teacher because that was an incredible story. I want to do that. I love that. But yeah, let's let's give some teachers some love. So and if it's a mentor teacher, I understand that as well. Um, but uh, let me know who your favorite teacher was and uh, we'll get you. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll choose one, two. How many books? Two you, we'll, two? Do two. Cool. we'll do one for the, the person who highlighted the teacher and then one for the teacher. Ah, themselves. that's genius. Okay. So there you go. One for the person that nominates that. Uh, this was the teacher and then one for the teacher themselves. And uh, yeah, I will randomly, I will number them and then I will randomly draw a number. And then uh, uh, Jimmy, I'll, I'll get you that name and address and you can send them the signed copy. I, I love that. Amazing. I love that. Amazing. That's great. Yes. You know, you know, what's funny about this too is, and it's funny that we're talking about it, but maybe it's exactly why we're talking. One of the people that I wrote to recently in recent weeks actually was Mr. Palmquist. Um, and the reason that I wrote him is I said, you know, the book had come out, it had gotten good reviews and people were excited about it. 
And I said to him, I was like, look, basically I said, I do this because of you. Um, I was like, you're the, you're the, you're the person who got me fired up about this specific thing, meaning books and writing and stuff. And we've stayed in touch for, for over the years and, uh, and he's great. I mean, we still, you still, you know, we'll meet every now and again, but uh, it's funny that we're talking about teachers so much because I, I just wrote to him like, you know, a week or two ago, which is really, so this is fitting that we're talking about this and doing this kind of giveaway. Well, I, yeah, man, I love that. Uh, let's get that going. Uh, Mr. Pomquist, if you are listening to this, uh, you, man, what a, what a legacy. There's a book out there that you inspired. I think that's, that's the best story ever. Uh, again, his name is Jimmy Sony, uh, the founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. It can be found on Amazon, it can be found at Barnes and Nobles. Uh, please go check it out, give it a read. And, uh, and and support that and give that uh, mentor teacher some love. Jimmy, cannot thank you enough for being on the show. Thank you so, so very much. Don, thank you for having me. This was, this was great. I'm glad we did the, the extended version, the longer conversation. We, tr- we covered a lot of different ground, which I really like. And uh, this was a blast. 